Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts, exploring best practices and innovative insights to help you and your organization improve performance. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the GP Strategies Podcast. My name is Julian Lee, and I am your host for today's uh, session, and I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, today, we're going to talk about technology implementations and adoption of new technology. Uh, we understand that these technologies are a lot of times are big, big ticket items, huge investments from organizations in the millions of dollars. And a lot of times there are some unforeseen obstacles that won't allow clients to get the most out of what they anticipated from these technologies. So, you know, we, we, we want to draw from the experiences in this session and talk about some of the key practices and things that we can do to one, avoid those pitfalls. But secondly, if they do occur, how do you manage and manipulate out of those scenarios so you can get the possible best outcome of your technology implementations? So I have the esteemed pleasure of being here today with a, a gentleman by the name of Walker, Walter Nikolai, <laughs> who's a training manager at GP Strategies. Welcome to the podcast, Walter. Thank you very much, Juliana. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. So before we get started, uh, why don't you give us a quick down and dirty about your experience in the training and technology adoption world and, and just share a bit of information about yourself with our guests. Sure. It'll be my pleasure. So again, thank you for the opportunity to, to meet with you and share some of my experiences. So currently, I am a learning and development manager at GP Strategies. That wasn't always the case. So I started more than 20 years ago in this field. So that was back in early or late 90s, I should say, last century as a junior SAP training developer. So right around the time when Y2K was on everybody's mind and uh, organizations were in a big rush to upgrade and avoid the feared uh, IT Armageddon that was upon us at the time, or at least perceived such. Luckily, we're still here. So <laughs> I got to spend another 20 years in this wonderful field of performance uh, management, humans, performance technologies. My experience has been been entirely in uh, the space of systems training, that is technology-based and technology training for enterprise resource planning uh, systems, ERP. So as I mentioned, uh, I started as an SAP uh, training developer, which was and still is a major um, ERP provider. So at the time in the 90s, that was over 90% of all the work uh, that uh, we were doing. So subsequently, I branched out and moved on to other systems uh, such as Oracle ERP and most recently Infor, which is one of the industry top five ERP providers. A fact, uh, not many know probably, right? So one of the best kept secrets in the industry. So regardless of the uh, platform, my focus has been on enabling users to perform at their best by providing the skills and knowledge uh, they need to perform on their daily jobs, right? So, and that was achieved mainly through training. So customized end user uh, training solutions. So never off the shelf type of product. ERP is a tricky type of area that requires extensive customization. So we help our uh, 
um, clients, our customers to deliver uh, such customized uh, solutions. And initially it was almost actually exclusively instructor-led in person. So I used to spend my entire professional time at the client side, which required you know, being on the road 100% of the time. And I truly enjoyed that. It was a wonderful time. It was a great way to see the country and work in various uh, environments. I truly, truly enjoyed that. So, you know, just briefly in my these 20 plus years of experience, I performed in a variety of roles along uh, the uh, process of uh, instructional systems uh, design and development. So I was initially a training developer and then gradually moved uh, towards managing the overall uh, development lifecycle, delivery and uh, sustainment, so project management and the like, as well as provided training-related uh, guidance to our client, and client as well as recommendations. So here we are today. Wow. Wow, Walter. That's an extensive amount of experience that you just alluded to. But, the, you know, the, the one thing just to hit on the difference between where we are um, today versus where we were when instructor-led training was the, the, the modality for, I mean, face-to-face instructor-led training was the modality to, to transfer knowledge to, to the users of these new systems. But to be where we are today is quite, quite different in terms of how we engage with our stakeholders, engage with people when we're, we're in the training space. So I'm sure you can appreciate technology and, and, and can appreciate the way that we've had to shift in order to make things work in this environment. Absolutely. It's been a, a great transformation, I dare say, for the better. As I mentioned initially, we had to spend our entire time at client sites, so face-to-face contact was required. And uh, although technology was in place at the time, right, in the late 90s, it was not widely accepted to work remotely. So this has changed. And I think one of the drivers, you know, has been cost, as it always is. But subsequently, organizations realize that a lot of work gets done, even if one is not on site, visible, right, and in, in plain sight. And this has been or has become abundantly clear during you know, this year of pandemic where all of us, most of us, at least white collar employees, right, have worked remotely, 100%, most of us, right? right and right, right. things have moved along and in the right direction. So productivity has not taken a hit. Quite the opposite. We we ended up working more than, than before. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. So let, let's let's dig dig a little bit deeper and tap into this experience that you have. Like I said, it's pretty extensive. So for for the technology implementations to be successful, it requires a lot of planning and strategy. What advice would you have for our listeners to help them be successful in the delivery of of implementation and the adoption of projects from the beginning, you know, at the initial phases of the project? And how uh, would you advise them to get projects back on track should they be struggling in some capacity? So, yeah, planning is indeed a very, very important element of the entire process. I cannot stress enough the importance of planning. And I do remember that one of my first assignments was to work on a project and implementation that a pharmaceutical company undertook. So more than 10,000 employees, international worldwide presence that lasted more than three, three years. It involved around 
500 team members or so and ended up costing over $1 billion. So, and that was back in early 2000s when $1 billion meant a lot of money. <laughs> so, indeed, planning, you know, is, is crucial for success. It's not the only thing that needs to be done right, of course. But I uh, do admit that I am, you know, biased in this regard because I also, you know, believe that in addition to, to planning, the focus on the entire project should be the people, right? So the beneficiaries of the end uh, results. So everything needs to be centered around the question, how do we enable our end users to be successful in, uh, in their roles, right? So it sounds easy and straightforward, but in many cases, I don't want to generalize too much, right? So all too often, systems implementations focused on the technical in a part. So, you know, I agree with, you know, with Mike Hammer, who is widely quoted in his, you know, from his book, Reengineering the, the Corporation, that, you know, the soft stuff is the hard stuff, right? Yes, so meaning yes, that, indeed. Right? You know, the, the, the change-related variables, like human-related variables uh, that are difficult to measure typically pose the greatest challenge and barrier to a successful uh, transformation. So I know he did uh, run into some hot water because his numbers that he quoted, you know, more than 70% of the implementations do not succeed. Those were not scientifically collected, right? It was just a guesstimate. But years after, it's more than 20 years after his book came out, it is a fact, established and accepted fact, that about half of the transformation efforts do not fully deliver on expectations. So in my view, that is directly attributed to the, to the fact that the impact of change is not fully uh, taken into account. Mm-hmm. Right? So my overall you know, recommendation is to think of the long-term benefit of having a thoroughly elaborated and implemented change effort. So in addition to the technical element, you know, covers the expected organizational member behaviors, and it shouldn't uh, focus exclusively on the price tag, right? So the budget should not be the driver of how we plan and, you know, how many resources we assign to our endeavor, right, to our project. So I think that, you know, less manageable or or less quantifiable variables such as, you know, communication and and training and overall facilitation of change should be included along with evaluation methods for both short-term and long-term effectiveness. And I have to say that in my entire career, I have heard of one single return on investment evaluation performed on you know one of the projects a few years ago the fabled level 4 uh, evaluation right mm-hmm. so it, most measurements that I've seen and done focuses on immediate reaction to training, right? The smiley sheet, even, you know, transfer of knowledge to work, which is the level three, right? It's seldom measured, if at all. I think I've seen that in in a couple of uh, instances. So again, too few. So I'm not aware of any other post-implementation types of evaluations being conducted to measure the success of the implementation. So I'm thinking that, you know, in the long run, less than successful deployment will end up costing much, much more than originally anticipated 
albeit if not measured, it will not appear to be a cost, right? So we go live, we flip the switch, everything is hunky-dory, we move on, right? So if we don't measure the time it takes to actually achieve the performance curve and achieve a level of, of good performance, then we'll never know how much we spend on, on implementations. So lastly, I would also include uh, sustainment, right? So what happens after go live? So who owns the success of end users? Who manages ongoing training, onboarding of new team members, updating policies, procedures, um, and other you know, training content? So sadly, more often than not, these important activities fall by the wayside and are quickly forgotten. That's eminently true about training. I have to say that once we deliver training, in many cases, our materials ended up on a shelf, be it you know, real or virtual, and that's where they went to die. Right. So there you have it. I'm thinking about applying a holistic approach, taking into account the entire spectrum of performance, plan with the end user in mind, not run budgets, and for the long run. Yes, uh, that's it. that is quite insightful, Walter. You hit on some key points that are near and dear to my heart is let's not shortchange one of the most critically important aspects of, of technology solution implementation is that people aspect. It's the it's the training, the organizational change management. When you when you're you're really looking at the focus of let's build this solution, let's get it out. That's the key. We need this system up and running. And if that's the primary focus, and you shortchange the the true critical pieces of understanding how folks are going to be impacted, and then what do I need to do to get them ready? Not only from a uh, change, but from a, a end user adoption perspective and training perspective, so they have those baseline skills to do the work day one when you flip the switch, and then sustain that that model is is vital to project implementation success. All right, so we're we're talking about success. In your experience, what are some of the key factors that leads to successful adoption of the new technologies? That's a great question, Julian. So <clears throat> I think to answer that, firstly, we need to define, you know, what, is, what means to be successful in an implementation or uh, IT implementation in, in this example, right? Does it mean to go live on time or does it mean to have an overall successful uh, adoption effort and user acceptance, right? So... I guess both, right, to some extent. So this is something that it's not set in stone. You know, these success criteria, they need to be evaluated based on the particular situation at hand, right? Part of the planning uh, effort again. So in my experience, I have to say that the majority of the implementations I worked on started as a, and were IT-driven efforts, right, mm -hmm. with a heavy focus on the technical elements of the solution. So... You know, in this example, or you know, in this case, metrics um, for measuring success were heavily influenced by technology. So, how many rice items have closed? How many scripts have executed uh, successfully? How many defects have been solved? Have all cutover activities been successfully completed? And you know, so on and so forth, right? And Please make no mistake, all these are very important variables and absolutely no doubt about it and no, no challenging of these measurements. My point is that they need to be 
coupled and it, they need to be augmented with end user training and sustainment uh, measures. So to a larger degree than it's happening. So these activities are managed somewhat or have been managed somewhat uh, separately from the overall implementation. So keeping in mind, training is not exactly on the critical path, but I think it is an incredibly important element of the overall implementation because whether we like it or not, end users will evaluate the success of a deployment based on their first encounter with a new system, which is driven by training and also the quality of training. So I cannot stress enough the importance of including change management as an integral part of any implementation or any change for that matter. This is, you know, sounds commonsensical, but it's not done very frequently. Again, I have not seen change management uh, effort on more than half, if not, you know, three quarters of all the projects I've been on. So... I don't know what the what the factors are, what led to to this outcome, but I think change management is is super critical, and it doesn't have to be a systems implementation that requires this type of services. It can be any type of change that is affected in an organization. So. I know, I understand that, you know, change is difficult and it's very, very insidious and people do not really enjoy that. It's, it's very demanding, it's harrowing, and it does create a lot of anxiety. So quotes that Jean Monnet, the founder of the European Union, or the architect, I should say, said relative to, to change, right? So this was at a time when Europe had just come out of a horrible conflagration, the Second World War. And he said that people only accept change when they are faced with necessity and see necessity only in crisis. Now, granted, that was a very, very, you know, terrible time in European and world history, right? So things are not as somber, right, in our world of today. So change is not exactly a matter of life and death, but it is important and it does affect us more than we are prepared to, to acknowledge, right? So change management should be part of the consideration, part of any project that deal with anything that shifts or tries to shift the company, the culture, the organization towards a new direction. So why this doesn't happen? I don't know, but I suspect it has to do with the cost it usually, you know, is attached to, to change management. And I think that organizations do have some issues with thinking from a holistic, you know, human performance point of view and make sure that their future users understand, are fully on board and accept the change, right? So the final point I'd like to make here is that, you know, I am including training as part of the overall change management category, right? So this has been the sphere of, of my activity. So I'm not a change manager. I do look up to change managers, but, you know, training, which is more focused, right? It's a, it's a very targeted approach to change, right? It's very concrete. And that's why most organizations focus on that because training is a tangible. How many job aids have you developed? How many courses? How many simulations? How many hours of training have you delivered? So we can, you know, check the, the checkbox and we're done with it. So. Yeah, I love your analogies and, and, and 
the way you vividly share stories about your experiences and also just life experiences in general and, and what some people say about change. I've got one in, that I want to share and, I, and I've got a, an upcoming blog and and I'm just going to speak just I don't want to give it away, but there's one little snippet that makes sense about what you said. It would be the equivalent not having change in training would be the equivalent of buying a high end sports car, Ferrari or Lamborghini and knowing that it's supposed to perform at a certain level and you're expecting it to perform at that level and you put regular unleaded gas in it. Right. Right. Or drive it at low speed or drive it at or low drive speed. It at low speeds or or you, you, you're, you're given this expensive vehicle that's got all the bells and whistles in, in the, the array of dials and and technology in this car you'd never seen before. And they throw the keys and said, OK, it's yours. So you don't you don't get any education on how to even drive the car. So it doesn't meet your expectations. Regardless of how much you spend on that car, if you put regular gas, if you're not taught how to drive it, it does not meet your expectation. Or if you don't drive it to its full potential, you've got to have some mechanism that makes uh, that a part of the process. And that's the way I look at change and training. All the success criteria that you mentioned doesn't always come to fruition. And sometimes projects get off track, right? If you could allude to... I don't know, maybe a time when a project got off track and what your experience did to bring that project back on track or just allude to some of the pitfalls that that our listeners and and, and potential clients could rely on to avoid those those pitfalls. And if you will, just elaborate on on some of the challenges that you may have experienced and, and how you reacted to those. Yeah, sadly, that that is the case, you know, more often than not. So in my you know, 20 plus years of working in this, uh, you know, field, this industry, and many, many projects I've been on, just a very few ended up delivering on time, if that were the only measure of success, which of course it's not. But the point here is that very few efforts ended uh, along the lines that was initially planned, right? So it took much longer, it cost much more, and probably did not deliver everything that was initially scoped. So my take is that, you know, these projects fail because planning, again, planning is superficial and predicated on unrealistic expectations uh, of the resources needed and what it really takes to deliver on a proposed or attempted solution, right? So it's not easy to estimate what, what it takes, but at a minimum, Organizations need to truly start from what has to be done and not look at a calendar and say December 25th looks like a great day to go live. So my experience is along these lines, right? So projects are set up and carried out based on a timeline that is disassociated with what actually needs to be done. So particulars of the situation are neglected or missed because sometimes, you know, it's convenient to do so. And project plans are set up based on templates that look good on paper, but they don't fully take into account what actually uh, needs to be done, right? So that that is uh, an issue. So diminishing the effort that goes into all this, it is significant and it is carried out by very, very skilled and talented professionals, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not the problem here, right? 
I think the culprit in many instances is the actual budget, the available budget, which rarely, if ever, is plentiful. So the most, therefore, the most important resource on any project, its people, are put in a position where they have to deliver a significant scope on tight, if not very tight timelines, with little room for delay or buffer, which is normal, right? right so right, right. I was thinking about the error, but I, I don't want to say that. So I would say delay. Things do happen sometimes that, you know, they need their time and that needs to be taken into account, right? In addition to this, in many cases, you know, team members are asked to work on the project full-time while also continuing to do their full-time day jobs. This causes a lot of tension and does cause damage to the level of energy and motivation, particularly after, right, after a couple of months into the project. And think of this, if you have a one year plus long uh, implementation where you have to still perform your daily duties and also be a subject matter expert, a technical expert, you know, a tester, and also trainer, right? So the end result is that, you know, this threatens to affect the quality of performance, and it does in, in many cases, mm -hmm. on both the project and one's day job. So what appears to be a benefit initially, that is one person, double the benefit, half the cost, ends up being a double negative. So these are more often than not, effects that are not measured are not taken into account, but their effects are felt throughout the, the project. And that results in delays and the exact opposite of what is expected, that is maintaining the budget or keeping the cost low. So anti-result of the original plan. I have also witnessed several cases of severe underestimating, severely underestimating the actual technical work needed to have a successful deployment of the product. Mm -hmm. So this has been very rare, but it happened. And when it happened, it caused a tremendous heartburn and of course associated, you know, costs with that. So I'm saying it doesn't happen in many cases because typically the technical element, configuration element, these are relatively speaking easier to manage compared to the human aspect on a project, but the impact can be just as impact. So one example here without naming names is that I once was on a project that deployed their solution. It was a half-baked type of deployment. I'm sorry to say that. And after go live, they spent two years, I think it was actually over two years in stabilization mode after several delays of their go live because of incomplete configuration, incomplete testing, and a very bad assessment of the actual particulars, the scenarios that were needed for the organization to, uh, to function. So basically what was deployed was a sunny, sunny skies type of scenario that nobody really used. It was less wow. than 1% that was applicable. Yes. Wow. wow. So the big question is like who approved that plan and you know who thought that was a good idea again it looked good on paper apparently right right, right, right. So because they were all very smart and capable people and there were like thousands of end users impacted by that 
So if I were to sum this up, I would say this, right? <clears throat> Spend adequate time on planning. Don't see it as a waste of time because the percent complete is not showing just, you know, progress that, that you're expecting. And don't let the budget be the main driver of what needs to be done. So remember the words of Abe Lincoln, right? He said, he's quoted to having said, if I had one hour to cut down a tree, I would spend 45 minutes sharpening my ax. And I think that is, you know, that's a great quote that exemplifies, you know, the importance of planning. Wow. I had never heard that, that, that good old Abe before. That's <laughs> Abe. But it was George Washington who cut down the cherry tree, right? That's a myth. That's a myth. <laughs> that's a myth. And not, maybe not so necessarily true, right? But that's what we've been told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Abe was in the backwoods. He spent a lot of time in the woods, right? So <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we need to take Abe's advice then. <laughs> I really appreciate your candor and your explicit sharing of this information. It's, it's quite bountiful in what I think our listeners will, will get from uh, our, our discussion here. Let's switch to gears for, for a couple of minutes here on the foundational methodology or the importance of a methodology being in place, both from a change in training perspective and how that approach allows for projects to be more successful and adopted? Yeah. So I would say that that is, you know, having a methodology makes the difference between delivering a quality product versus a mediocre one. And in extreme cases, I think it makes the difference between success and failure. So we at GP Strategies, we actually, you know, pride ourselves in, you know, having, you know, an instructional design methodology that is a differentiator uh, compared to, you know, other uh, organizations in the the realm of human performance technology. So, you know, this sounds very dramatic, but it is true. So remember the Cheshire, you know, cat in Alice in Wonderland when Alice was lost and she was asking for directions. And then, you know, the cat told Alice that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there, right? So, <laughs> so that's exactly what methodologies will help with, right? So provide a roadmap, point the direction and take out the guesswork and anxiety from how to proceed, right? So in addition to this, you know, they add, you know, discipline, they add rigor and a sense of unity, uh, which leads to an effective way of moving in the right direction. This is important to me. So I probably, that's my personality as well, but I do believe in having a sound, you know, pr proven type of, you know, methodology and it has been invaluable in, in my career. So for example, the, the ADI model, which is what we have been applied in, you know, modified form. But this is a standard, right, that is used around the world and has provided, you know, health to countless ISD professionals since, you know, the early 70s, right? So another very important side effect of having a methodology is, you know, the benefits of reducing the anxiety of having to make a decision at, uh, you know, every turn when it comes to, you know, documentation, for example, standardization, that's one of the elements. And then in the absence of best, you know, practices and recommended approach, you will have to make, you know, these types of uh, decisions, you know, by, you know, every single day and everyone has to do that, right? So that that's a recipe for, for chaos, right? So that's not a way to spend one's time. So quality will suffer, right? So outcome is less than, uh, than desirable, right? 
So I remember I, I actually still have my library in my library, the um, methodology courses that I took 20 years ago. And I do, you know, refer to them from time to time. They are in binders, you know, five ring binders in, in my you know bookshelf. And, you know, they're still good reading. They still make good reading. So they're classics that never go out of fashion. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is that's phenomenal. And that's good to know that you still have those in your possession. But I, I want to highlight something here. And I think it's it's a great attribute that you brought to this conversation. You have taken us from Mike Hammer to Abe Lincoln to Alice in Wonderland. So if there's not if there's not something here for each and every listener, then they're missing something, right? Four to four through history and, and, and the memorable quotes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I thoroughly can appreciate what you've delivered here, and it's been quite uh, entertaining. So this has been a great conversation. So in closing, what advice would you give? to change in training practitioners about how to confidently, and I think the word here is confidently, handle the successes and the pitfalls of technology adoption. So, you know, I have to admit, right, I'm a bit envious of OCM professionals because, you know, I'm not really an OCM you know, professional. I'm like aspiring, right, to, <laughs> to that position. So regardless, I think OCM is a fascinating field. And I do remember my first, my first exposure to this discipline. It was back in the 90s in business school when I first learned about organizational theories and group dynamics. So at the time, this was still in its infancy. It wasn't widespread. It wasn't well known, right? Fairly obscure in, in terms of uh, organizations applying the principles of change management. But, you know, along these lines, one of my first reactions was that OCM, it deals with humanity in, in general, right? And what it means to live and function in a group, right? And therefore applies to life in general. So it's not just the restricted or the confines of a, of a team or uh, an organization, Right. Therefore, it is a bit difficult to grasp. It takes time to master. Right. So it has to do with a journey, which is never a straight line. So that's the journey of life. Right. From, from A to B. And it is a, a skill that takes time to acquire, takes a lot of time and dedication. So it is important to know thyself. That is the Oracle of Delphi. There you go. We go back another, you know, 2000 years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been known to man or people, let's say people, right, since time immemorial, right? Know thyself, an incredible, incredible, important element, self-awareness, right, of being able to help others, right? First, you need to know thyself. So how does one become proficient in a given skill? Doesn't have to be change management, any kind of skill for that matter, right? Keeping in mind, nobody has ever been born wise or achieved a level of proficiency, a high level of proficiency without significant investment in terms of effort and time. Mm -hmm. So not even Einstein achieved that, okay? So he did spend a lot of time in, in, in school and thinking, right, and practicing. So that's the other very good point here, or you know, point that I, I'm trying to make. Although theory is good, it's always practice that makes perfect. So if you think about it, unapplied knowledge, passive, you know, such knowledge is useless. It has no effect, right? It doesn't influence anything. Therefore, theoretical knowledge must be supplanted, must be 
complemented by practice to make it a truly valuable and applied skill, right? So the principle stays the same though. Change is difficult. Uh, it's a process that takes time and to become adept at it, you need to practice it, right? Mm -hmm. So OCM practitioners, right, need to be well-versed in these principles of change, right? So I think this draws a lot from psychology, right? It's our psychology, like human such, to be able to recognize the signs of success or failure while being adept at communicating the importance of change and dr driving, you know, change in their uh, work, right? So guiding their clients through the transition process and being able to negotiate the various hurdles, the various obstacles that will arise in, in one's path, right? So it sounds very diffuse, very tricky, and not a quick thing, which is exactly what I'm, I'm driving at here, mm -hmm. right? So it takes a lot of time to do that. The good news is that one does not to, need to be Einstein to master this. Really, anybody can do it. And I have to say, every single uh, OCM practitioner I've worked with and I've encountered in my professional life, life, you know, have or has fit uh, this description very well, right? So very competent, you know, very adept at the performing their, their work and being really, really good at, at what they're doing. So working in a group and affecting positive change in the direction that one wishes Although it's easy to articulate, it's not that easy to implement. Probably that's why most organizations shy away from hiring professional change managers and opt for uh, doing it themselves internally, which really never happens. Because after initially uh, trying to assess change and driving that with internal resources doesn't, doesn't work and, you know, invariably, you know, fails, sadly. So that's, that's my advice. I know it's not that uh, easy. It's not a very straightforward, simple type of recipe, but I think it's it's a fantastic uh, profession and worthy of, of one's time and, and effort. And I think that the rewards are immense, right? As we And as we succeed in our endeavors, we also have a chance at becoming not just more efficient or skilled and competent professionals, but also better person. And, you know, what what, what better thing can it be in life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is some pretty sound advice, both on the professional and the personal level. So again, thank you for sharing that, that analogies and those stories. So quite, this has been quite entertaining, right? And I think our listeners will get a lot out of this podcast and we we certainly have appreciated your involvement and, and your uh, passion about what it takes to get technology adopted. And it so clearly embodies the people aspect of it and not to minimize the technology delivery development, the, the, the decisions that are made to, to bring that, that technology component into, into fruition, but uh, without the people focus and the aspect of how people react to change and how they react to learning is vitally and just as critical as any other aspect of project management and, and product delivery and, and user adoption. Again, I want to thank you for sharing your experience, for sharing your passion, for talking about the importance of uh, technology adoption and how it leads to project success. So again, 
hats off to you. Yeah, top hats, as a matter of fact, since Abe, Abe Lincoln was a part of our discussion. <laughs> and thank you once again for being a part of the podcast. Awesome. Awesome, Julian. It's been a, a pleasure. So thank you very much for allowing me to, to share some of my experiences. I trust that our listeners find that useful and usable. So I had great fun at, at chatting with you. So Excellent. Thank you very much. The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts and listen on our website at gpstrategies.com slash podcasts.